the Panhandle News Network. The views and opinions on this station do not necessarily represent the Panhandle News Network, WEPM and WCST, or West Virginia Radio Corporation. Here we go! Welcome to Panhandle Live on WEPM and WCST, the Panhandle News Network. Panhandle Live is brought to you by Country Roads Tire and Auto, taking you home with full-service auto care, with a higher level of care, with two locations to proudly serve you in Martinsburg and Hedgesville. Online, too, at CountryRoadsTireOnline.com. Here are your hosts of the 2022 WVBA Talk Show of the Year, Jordan Warner and Marsha Kavalik. It is Tuesday the 21st and you're tuned into Panhandle Live, driven by Country Roads Tire and Auto, taking you home with full service auto care with a higher level of care with two locations in Martinsburg and Hedgesville to serve you online, countryroadstireonline.com. And from the Hoppy Kirchville building, I'm Jordan Ice Warner. Alongside me is Marsha Kavalik. Good morning, Marsha. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Good. It's a busy, busy show. We want to get right to it. Uh, it is not every day that you announce... Uh, that the state police chief, the superintendent, has resigned and the state police in general is under uh, investigation over you know three separate incidents. Joining us via phone is Metro News statewide correspondent Brad McElhaney, who's been covering this story. And we want to ask him his perspective and also specifically about the incident that regard, in regard uh, to the death of a man on I-81 in February, which is one of those um, incidents being investigated. So welcome in, Brad. Good morning. Thank you. Thanks for being in. And, of course, your stellar reporting that folks can always follow on Metro News. So walk us through this. And then, of course, we want to talk about your your FOIA request in regard to the death of that man on I-81. Yes. And so I-81 is the the prong of the story that brings it home to, to your listeners. But the broad picture is there have been rumors circulating for weeks about trouble with the state police and the Justice Administration looking at the, the culture and leadership with the state police. And that burst forth yesterday with the superintendent of all places announcing his resignation in the governor's apparently Lewisburg driveway. Uh, the, the governor, they are longtime friends, both with deep Greenbrier County roots. This is Superintendent Jane Cahill, who has been the leader of the state police throughout the entire Justice Administration since 2017. And so their close relationship has apparently been fractured over this investigation, these rumors. The way the governor told the story yesterday is Cahill reached out to him, said he had to talk to him, they, they met yesterday morning early in the governor's driveway, and justice told him that there's no path forward for you, that, that this is all going to lead to dead ends with your time with the state police. And so Superintendent Cahill told the governor on the spot as they spoke in the driveway, well, I'm, I'm resigning. The governor then announced that and gave some more context to reporters like me as well as to the rest of the state during an afternoon briefing. And the, the troubles, at least, in, at least at first glance, boiled down to three things. One was very troubling, and the governor acknowledged being troubled, 
a video surveillance system, a recording system in a women's changing room at one of the state police offices. I, I, we think that it was the, the state police uh, training area in Institute. I mean, it, I guess it only matters if you were one of the people who might have been in that facility. Mm. But for some reason, there was a video surveillance predated the Justice Administration. It was it was before this, but the guy who was supposed to have installed it died. And there was a, re- a recording, apparently kept, according to the governor, on a, a, a miniature hard drive that then was discovered and destroyed. Uh, don't, don't quite know why it was destroyed. So the governor was, was you know, just deeply upset about that, but didn't necessarily draw a line directly to Cahill to say he should have handled it this way instead of that way, but but very troubled over it. The second thing was an incident at the Mardi Gras Casino in Cross Lanes where there was a guy apparently using one of the video gambling machines and in the governor's telling had an envelope of money. Uh, went to the bathroom or somewhere, walked away, left his envelope there, and there had been a, a trooper, apparently recognizable by video, nearby. And, and the trooper, instead of returning the money to the man, in the governor's telling, pockets it, takes off. The governor characterizes that as theft. Uh, that apparently was within the last few years, and there is some question about whether how, how the state police investigated their own in that incident. D- did they, you know, come down hard on the guy? Did they did they truly investigate aggressively? Did they let the guy go to some other capacity of life? Um, there is there is discussion that that he might have abruptly retired rather than being fired or punished in some way. But that's that's an outstanding question. What happened there? No, and then the third thing is the one that brings it home to Martinsburg, which is this February incident on I eighty one that's still the subject of investigation, but it was a fatality, some sort of confrontation. And frankly, you guys probably know more about this than so I do. So the, the gentleman was from Hagerstown. His last name, X-Line. His family said he had a history of some, some mental illness, but uh, they didn't believe that he would be drinking because he had some 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 fears about interactions with police. Uh, and uh, I remember when it happened, uh, uh, Dave McMillan from the Herald Mail wrote a story about it. I tried to reach out to the state police, and usually when it's a traffic fatality or something like that, they're really forthcoming. I get a press release. In this case, nothing. And David said in his uh, article that um, that that he had he'd been told, you know, the the investigation was continuing, so there wouldn't be any information coming out about it. You uh, have have uh, issued a FOIA of your own. I have, and I know you've been working on it also, as you said. And you know, the the difference might be I am now, and maybe others are too, am, am reaching out to the governor's office via Freedom of Information request, and don't know what the result might be. Haven't heard yet, but. My understanding is the governor has now seen this video evidence, and he, again, described himself as as being disturbed when watching it, upset. And so, you know, we are, are, as an organization, Metro News, now reaching out to the governor's office to see if if we could get it. And, uh, you know, boy, it, it sounds disturbing, but see with our own eyes 
and, and begin to at least have some better idea how to characterize this. Uh, so that, that's the third thing that, that really troubled the governor. Um, it, is, it is one of the things that broadly the administration is looking into regarding the culture of the state police. Um, again, I, I, I don't, the governor did not directly describe any missteps by Cahill, the superintendent, on that new issue, and it, it it seems difficult to me to determine if, you know, a month later, if broadly the, the state police organization has done anything wrong, but it's uh, clearly the subject of, of real scrutiny, and we're going to try to independently take a look and, and see what we think. Now, of course, the magnifying glass is pretty firmly on the state police and, uh, you know, the powers that be down south. But have there been kind of rumblings about things like this? A lot of this stuff, you know, doesn't just kind of come out of nowhere. It's happening for, you know, a period of time. And people will talk about it, but it'll get kind of, you know, overlooked or things like that. Have, have there been kind of the, the bubblings of these type of allegations uh, in the past? Well, I mean, yes, over the years questions of, of violence, um, you know, some, some workplace issues with the state police. But more recently, the, this all percolating late last year, and there was a really detailed letter that came from someone who is anonymous that, that was circulated, and it got in the hands of uh, a pretty aggressive television news reporter in the Charleston area, Kenny Bass, who went to the governor with it and apparently read aspects of it aloud uh, that then prompted the administration to begin taking a look at the allegations in the letter more seriously. It's been a challenge to know how to report on it from, from our perspective because the letter was anonymous, the, the allegations were both salacious and serious, but difficult to, to determine their veracity from the outside, and so almost the only thing to do has been, the only responsible thing to do in some ways is, is you know, either ask or kind of wait till the administration comes through with its determinations. Uh, and, and we are now in that period where the governor more clearly described uh, three elements of the investigation yesterday, along with those cultural concerns that he hopes will now begin to be cleaned up by the, the newly appointed acting superintendent. Well, well, the governor's hands are kind of tied at this point, right? I mean, it, like you said, I mean, he has a relationship. They both have had a relationship for a long time, and there's really nothing else the governor can do, right? Because if he goes, I guess, any other way, then and that could op- open up a whole another can of worms. You know, I, 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 I think the, the governor's contention on this is that New leadership at the top can help with those sort of workplace culture issues. And also, our, our working understanding was that investigation by the Department of Homeland Security, the West Virginia Department of Homeland Security, we, we thought it was reaching a conclusion. It, it had been characterized that way previously. And that, that it was ending maybe late last week, and the results would be publicly announced to the degree they can this week. However, that is all true, actually, but the governor said that he wants the, the new superintendent to spearhead even deeper investigations to the, to the degree he can into the, the specifics of the allegations that have come out so far. Furthermore, the governor 
question by another TV news reporter, Amanda Barron, described uh, a federal involvement but, but, and didn't say the agency, but there apparently is either in cooperation or independently a, a federal investigation of West Virginia State Police. Uh, don't know if it's the whole thing, like I've described, or a particular aspect, but uh, nevertheless, it's, it's not the end of this. Uh, it is a new start with the new superintendent, but more to come. Uh, now with with federal involvement and potentially continued investigation. And an observation, observation, you know, if you're in the Eastern Panhandle and you hear the governor say, oh, I watched this video of an incident that happened in Berkeley County, and you understand that some of those state police, um, you know, personnel, and we don't even know which ones it might have or which one it might have been, um, may still be on the force and still be conducting traffic stops. It gives one pause, um, and, and it would be wonderful if the state police, under its new leadership, would be forthcoming. Let us know, you know, what happened, who was involved, uh, who the outside agencies are that might be investigating it, because, um, you know, this has real-time uh, concern for folks here in the Panhandle. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, there was—this is not the first— incident of concern in the panhandle there was the 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 beating case in the middle of the night um after a traffic stop involving multiple police agencies just a a few years ago do you remember that one um that one wound up catching the governor's attention and was the subject of um court action in federal court so uh it it it, you know the, the the public confidence in these police agencies is a key to what they do and to the degree that our state officials and uh, local officials with the state police can be forthcoming, it's it's better for all. Brad McElhaney, we'll be following your reporting on this, and uh, let us know how we can help up here. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. Alrighty, Absolutely. Take care. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, you guys. And that's Metro News statewide correspondent Brad McElhenney joining us here on Panhandle Live, talking about, well, all the craziness going on down south with uh, the probe and the state police and resignation of uh, the superintendent, Superintendent Cahill. Uh, and, of course, that rings a little bit close to home, too, when you start to see reports of different things going on, of course, with the sheriff here and the allegations and things with that that were just, uh, what, a month or so ago. So definitely in the forefront of West Virginians' minds right now or at the front of West Virginia's minds. Uh, talking about things like this. But, of course, you can head to Metro News, WVMetroNews.com uh, and check out the reporting on that. Programming note as well. Talk line right after our program with Hoppy Kirchival. Uh, top of the program in uh, from the Charleston studio, Jan Cahill, former superintendent of the West Virginia State Ooh. Police, will be Hoppy's guest. Oh, I bet you Hoppy's got some questions for him, that's I for sure. So. Well, uh, broadcasting live from the Hoppy Kirchival building, we'll step aside for a few minutes and come back with more Panhandle Live on WPM and WCST, the Panhandle News Network. From Pawpaw to Harper's Ferry, from Martinsburg to Winchester, it's Panhandle Live with hosts Jordan Nice Warner and Marsha Kavalik. Welcome back to Panhandle Live, driven by Country Roads Tire and Auto. I'm Jordan Nice Warner, alongside me, Marsh Kavalik. If you missed it before the break, we had Metro News statewide correspondent Brad McElhenney on to talk about all the things revolving the West Virginia State Police happening down south and the resignation of Superintendent Jan Cahill, who, like Marsha said, will be joining Hoppy Kirchival on Talk Line immediately after our show here at 10 o'clock. But uh, here for this next segment, Marsha, you have a pretty cool little piece of audio you want people to listen to. Okay, so... Uh you you you've heard of the term redundancy, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I, I 
I heard this podcast. It's Jennifer Smith from the Berkeley County Development Authority, and she's um, sitting down in this podcast with uh, uh, someone who's coming new to, to the town, CMC Steel's Vice President um, Billy Milligan, uh, talking about putting this steel rebar plant in North Berkeley County at the site of a former, uh, at a Brownsfield site, uh, formerly owned by DuPont. And I thought, these questions are really good. The answers are really good. Um, she's doing what I would be doing. And I asked her for permission to broadcast part of that podcast. So thanks to the Berkeley County uh, Development Authority and Jennifer Smith for this. Thank you, Billy, for joining me today. And welcome back, everyone. This is our third podcast with the Berkeley County Development Authority. So if you would like to introduce yourself. Absolutely. Uh, good afternoon, Jennifer, and thank you for... Thank you, Billy, for joining me today. And welcome back, everyone. This is our third podcast with the Berkeley County Development Authority. So if you would like to introduce yourself. Absolutely. Uh, good afternoon, Jennifer, and thank you for, for having me here today. My name is Billy Milligan. I am vice president of Commercial Metals Company. And uh, I've been with CMC for about 25 years in a variety of different roles, and most recently vice president of uh, government affairs and sustainability. Well, thank you. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about commercial metals and what they do? Yeah, so what we like to say is that commercial metals creates uh, a better world of which we all live in through the products and the services that we manufacture. We were founded more than 100 years ago in a single location in Dallas, Texas, which was recycling. And today we operate 60 metals downstream recycling centers, 10 steel mills, soon to be 11 with CMC Steel West Virginia, and 60 downstream fabrication facilities. We're committed to developing you know, innovative products and, and solutions that strengthen and reinforce a wide range of inter industries in the U.S. And mentioning the 11th in Berkeley County, why was Berkeley County chosen? So we started the site search uh, early in 2022, and, and we gave our site search team very general parameters. It was uh, the Mid-Atlantic, the Northeast, and the Midwest. Uh, this facility will produce concrete reinforcing steel. And if you're familiar with concrete reinforcing steel, it's, it's a critical component that goes into concrete to give it the tensile strength it needs. And it's primarily used in construction. So when you think about construction, uh, you think about population centers. Where do people live? Where is the population migrating? And about two-thirds of the population in the United States is within a day's drive of Martinsburg, West Virginia. So it was, you know, not only attractive geographically from us, but also from a culture perspective. You know, when we look at where do we want to be uh, as a company, we like to have communities that have the same values that we do. And, and we found that here in Berkeley County. This project will also revitalize the DuPont Potomac River work site, which is amazing. Um, it is currently known as a brownfield site owned by the Shockey property. Yeah, it, it's my understanding that the Potomac River work site has not really had any industrial activity on it since the early 90s. It, it's been a while. And when we started evaluating this site, as you mentioned, Shockey, the developer, and, and DEP was in the process of looking really at the potential beneficial reuse of the property. So how can we take a property that has been stagnant for, you know, 30 years and, and make it something that is engaging and beneficial to the community? And I think CMC Steel West Virginia is, is really the first step in that process. And as you know, there are other things that are going on with that property that will also 
increase the value of that to the community. Absolutely. There's also torch energy there as well. Yeah, that's correct. Um, a solar farm. So moving along to um, everything up and running and um, employees and the starting wage. So how many employees will CMC employ and what will the starting wage be? Yeah. So, you know, the facility at its full capacity will employ about 235 people, you know, in various areas. They they include everything from environmental to human resources, safety, accounting, maintenance, quality control, and, and obviously production and logistics. You know, obviously with all those positions, wages vary by position. But what we've committed to for the county is that we'll bring about $76,000 a year in average wage over all those positions. Uh, you know, the hiring process will will occur in phases. Uh, the director of operations, which I think you met, um, Carlos Enuelo, yeah. um, he will have the responsibility for the uh, operating the entire facility. Uh, and he is actually in the process of, of relocating to, to Berkeley County. You know, initially, we'll we'll focus on hiring areas that will support attracting employees, because uh, that will be our our biggest challenge, as it is everywhere, is is staffing and educating, and getting the workforce up to speed to be able to operate a steel mill when we become operational. Just a, a quick key point is that we we've actually made our first hire for the facility, aside from Carlos, who's moving up here from Florida. We've hired a, a local person to head up all of our environmental, and uh, which we think is important for us as a business, is to hire hire local people as well. Um, you know, we're happy to say that um, we we're also looking for a human resources person to help us staff the facility, and and that is a very critical need for us. And we'll be reaching out locally. We we like to hire that person locally as well that has contacts in the community. Um, the, the majority of the hiring will actually occur about 12 months uh, prior to starting to install the equipment. And uh, that's important because we want to get these people trained. Uh, we'll be partnering with the, with the local college here and putting together a training program on how to operate the equipment. Um, the manufacturing equipment, which will be in late 2023, early into 2024. And we, you know, we want them to be a part of the equipment installation so that they fully understand how it works and how to operate it and can better maintain it going forward. Um, you know, to, to the training perspective, we have a, a program in place that we've used at some of our other startups when we started at Micromills. It's called a Modern Steelmaker. And we'll be rolling that out here locally in, in Berkeley County where we train employees. They will be on site part of the time and then there'll be classroom uh, part of the time as well, to help them get up to speed about the expectations of operating a steel mill. That's great. And I'm sure um, Blue Ridge Community and Technical College will be a, a huge asset and a partnership for commercial metals. It is. We're 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 already in discussions with Blue Ridge and, and also the high school with, uh, I believe it's James Rumsey program, and, yes. and further, um, you know, Building those relationships and and for the for the kids that you know college is not an option. We would like to give them an option to earn a good manufacturing wage here in Berkeley County. Yes, yeah, and we appreciate that. Uh, we often think of a traditional steel mill. Can you explain the difference between that and a micro mill? Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about there, there's really two ways um, that steel is made today. One is using blast furnace technology. And that technology uses iron ore that you mine from the earth. 
and it also uses coal uh, as a fuel. And if you've seen pictures of steel mills in the old Pennsylvania and, and probably even West Virginia at some point, um, you know, it's it's billowing smoke. It's uh, not very attractive for the environment. The micro mill or the electric arc furnace, which is the way we make steel, is not that way. We use recycled scrap metal, which we collect from the community, uh, and we convert that into new steel and roll it into product and finished goods. It's about, I would say, about 75% less greenhouse gas intensive than the old methodology. Um, but that's the electric arc furnace. So if you look at specifically the micro mill, it takes that electric arc furnace mini mill one step further. So um, if you think about how um, the mini mill works, is it melts the steel, the scrap metal. It goes into a casting bed, which casts it into what we call a semi-finished billet. And then it is cut into lengths, discrete lengths, and then stored. And when you're ready to make product, you heat it back up and put it through the rolling mill. The micro mill eliminates that reheating of the billet. So it goes directly from the furnace down into solidifying into a billet and directly into the rolling mill, which eliminates a lot of the energy that's required to heat it back up. CMC also, you mentioned, uses um, recycled steel. And to my knowledge, it's 100% recycled steel. Um, where do you get it from and what impact does that have on the community? Yeah, 100% of our steel production in the U.S. and in our European operations as well uses recycled steel scrap for our base material. Uh, we do uh, buy it from the local community, not so much from an individual. Uh, so we will buy from local dealers and scrap brokers, which there are scrap brokers here in, in the Martinsburg area, which we've already started to make contact with. You know, if you, if you think about it, um, there's about 15 million vehicles that are scrapped every year in the United States. And you ask yourself, what would happen to those if we, we didn't have the electric art furnace and this methodology? That, that would go into landfill. And, you know, we, we recycle um, scrap and of, of about 19 billion pounds per year that we take old cars and washing machines and, you know, anything that's worn out uh, and recycle it back into new steel. For every ton of scrap steel that we use to make new steel, we, we save the mining of 2,500 pounds of iron ore, 1,400 pounds of coal, about 120 pounds of limestone. So not only are we, you know, creating to a circular economy, which is recycling products, we're also saving the earth from the mining activity as well. Also, you also mentioned that CMC uses less energy than traditional steel making. Can you explain that a little bit further? Yeah. So as, as I mentioned, when we, the micro mill process specifically, which is the latest technology in the industry today, we, d we developed that with our equipment manufacturer back in 2009. And we have since built three of those mills and West Virginia will be our fourth. It's the process that it is what we call continuous continuous. So it goes directly from the melting furnace into the steel mill without the need of a reheat furnace. Well, what a reheat furnace does is it uses a lot of natural gas to heat the material back up to rolling temperatures. And so since we go directly into the rolling mill at rolling temperatures, we don't need to use that natural gas. And it saves um, around 80% 
less natural gas energy uh, to produce steel than does blast furnace, and about 82%, uh, which really, and from the EAF perspective, which translates into about a 32% overall energy reduction, because we we use uh, a, a lot of electricity, as you can imagine, plus the natural gas that uh, we save, because we we use uh, a, a lot of electricity, as you can imagine, plus the natural gas that uh, we save. So when will construction start? So we're currently completing due diligence on the property. Uh, we expect to execute a purchase agreement in early May and purchase the property. And our plan is to start clearing the site after we have purchased the property. Um, then in June, um, we will, we've been told that it's a, it's a date that we will get our air permit. So that's a kind of a gate for us. We cannot do a lot of site work with, with the exception of what's called grubbing, uh, just clearing the rubbish off the site. Uh, but we can't start a lot of construction until we get our air permit. And working with the DEP, they've been extremely uh, easy to work with and, and have given us a time frame of June 1st to have our environmental permit in place, of which we will then start full construction on the site. Um, we expect it to take about 24 months to fully construct, install equipment, and commission the mill for full operation. What industries do you serve? So, as I mentioned before, um, you know, the steel rebar, which goes into concrete, um, is generally in the construction market. Um, if you think about, as I said before, if you think about uh, the, the population really being the driver of uh, steel consumption, when, when industries or when the, the population is migrating, you have to backfill that with you have to put in infrastructure for the people that are moving. You have to put in schools. You have to put in hospitals. You have to put in roads and bridges and wastewater treatment plants to fulfill the population growth and the population migration. And steel reinforcing bar goes into every one of those markets. And that's the traditional markets that we serve. That again, uh, an excerpt from a podcast from the Berkeley County Development Authority. They're doing podcasts periodically. I think that was their third one. And uh, thanks to Jennifer Smith, the executive director over there, for letting me use that um, that sound. Mm -hmm. She had, she asked great questions. It was awesome. He gave great answers. So uh, why not share that with our listeners? So we appreciate their, uh, their sharing that. And uh, good information about a new uh, steel rebar plant coming into the north of the county. And real quick before we get to this break, do you know where people can find that podcast? On the, um, I found it on the Facebook page of the Berkeley County Development Authority. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, very cool. Very good interview. And it's neat that they're uh, getting into the podcast world. Yeah. We'll have to tell them, like, hey, back off a little bit. Like, don't start getting into <laughs> our, our As long world. as they're going to partner with us, I don't, <laughs> you know, that's fine. Exactly. Exactly. But very cool. And like Marcia said, you can find uh, the rest of that podcast online and uh, on Facebook as well. But we'll step aside. We'll be back with more Panhandle Live after this on WPM and WCST, the Panhandle News Network. Live and local, it's Panhandle Live. With hosts Jordan Nice Warner and Marsha Kavalik. Welcome back to Panhandle Live, driven by Country Roads Tire and Auto. I'm Jordan Nice Warner. Alongside me is Marsha Kavalik. And little did we know, Marsha, you were going to have a <laughs> potential impromptu family reunion I'm, here in the this studio. This is so cool. Okay, so our guest this morning is from Berkeley County Recovery Resources, Recovery Services Coordinator, Katie Morgan. And I said, oh, Morgan, I've got Morgan in my family. And we discovered we both have roots in southern West Virginia. 
Absolutely, yes. So we, I'm claiming <laughs> her. Well, how do you know? Claiming her as Ken right here, right now. You got cousins everywhere, Marsha. <laughs> That's so cool. All right, so uh, we, we wanted to talk to you. And in full disclosure, we're going to have uh, Pastor Tim Garino on later this week, and he's got some concerns about how um, you know the addiction crisis is being handled, uh, and we'll talk to him about his concerns and all of that. But wanted to talk to Katie about how um, how recovery resources and the efforts there are going. Uh, and, and something that I talked to Tim Saya about um, recently was uh, bad batch um, notifications. So uh, first of all, let, let's just introduce ourselves to you. Let us know how you got into this position, how long you've been with it. And then let's talk about some of those efforts. Sure. So um, I have been with the Recovery Resource Center since August of 2021. Uh, my background's in social work, and I actually spent the majority of my career doing child protective services in Virginia. Uh, this is definitely um, taking a different approach um, and looking at things through a different lens. Obviously, a lot of overlap in um, that role and uh, substance use disorder and experiencing a lot of that and, and seeing sides of, of that lens. Um, now I'm looking at it from a different side and uh, more of a preventative um, and meeting people where they're at, which is really cool for me. Now, we hear all the time that the panhandle is a unique case when it comes to addiction and you know the drug world in general. But why is that? What makes this area so unique, do you think? I think our location um, is a big piece of it. Is We are very close to a lot of uh, major cities. Uh, we have several um, interstates that, you know, kind of come to a confluence here. And, uh, you know, it's... It's definitely location in the mm -hmm. tri-state area for sure. I think it's easy for <clears throat> some of us to go through the day and not really um, interact with anyone that we that we can obviously see is dealing with addiction. Right. How prevalent is it in Berkeley County? Uh, it's very prevalent, and uh, you know, it's it's something that um, you may know someone struggling with, and you may may not realize that someone close to you is struggling with. Um, you know, there's. There's ways of hiding it for sure, and uh, it is definitely very prevalent for a lot of individuals here. When you look at some of the scanner traffic pages, whenever someone um, announces that there's an overdose at a hotel or uh, some location or someone's found nodding off, inevitably there's some family member that chimes in and says, what, what color is the car? Is it a girl or a boy? Do you know what age? How'd they do? And, and behind all of those threads is a family that is just in crisis. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, so a big piece of what our quick response team does is respond to those overdoses uh, in our community. And a big piece of, of what we have kind of made some changes to is there are a lot of deaths that we get on, on that report, obviously, um, but also making those efforts to connect with the family members, the friends, um, others who've been left behind. Um, and so we may not be able to do anything further for that individual who has unfortunately passed, but being a support to those family members and, um, you know, maybe there are other individuals in that home who are struggling who, who would like some assistance. When someone has overdosed but then brought, been brought back <clears throat> because Narcan is becoming more readily available, is the quick response team able to come and follow back up with those folks? Yes, absolutely. They are so um, the quick response team is trying to go out within 24 to 48 hours of that overdose incident occurring and making contact with that survivor. So um, we really, again, just try to meet people where they're at. If uh, people are not necessarily ready for treatment at that point in time, 
um, just staying connected with them and uh, being a support to them. Or we have peer coaches on that on that team that can uh, do check-ins, do peer coach sessions, um, encouraging them to go to meetings in our office. Um, you know, whatever support looks like. Sometimes it's um, helping make a referral for an outpatient um, option. Um, sometimes it's I'm absolutely not ready for treatment yet, but I'm open to you continuing to call me each week. Um, so, you know, that's a win in our book that that's that line of communication stays open and that conversations are able to be had, um, you know, just helping to support that person in their journey and where they're at on it. Well, you've mentioned it a lot uh, here in the last couple of minutes, talking about support and looking at your Facebook page. I mean, you have so many recovery meetings, support meetings, family yes. meetings, anonymous meetings. I mean, that has to be the really one of the more important things is letting people know that there are people out there that care about them because I'm assuming that you know when you're in the depths of uh, addiction it could be a pretty lonely place yes absolutely and and that is again what you know we just try to do at the resource center and that's what's unique about us is that we are open to the public and while we do get referrals you don't have to be referred to us you can literally just walk in the door Mm. and say I need help and this is what I need help with and and we can start there Our guest this morning is Katie Morgan from the Berkeley County uh, Recovery Resources. You mentioned you worked with CPS on the other end of this when families have been torn apart, sometimes because of addiction, sometimes because of incarceration, because someone was supporting their addiction. I imagine your perspective has changed a bit, um, you know, because your client now is the folks who who are dealing with uh, with addiction. Harm reduction uh, is is one of those uh, ideas that... uh, either has a lot of support or is kind of under a lens of criticism, depending on who you talk to. Um, Because some folks would say, look, you know, these folks chose this life. Um, This is enabling them. What do you say to that? So while, yes, uh, addiction may be a choice in the beginning, there comes a time in individuals' addiction where it's, it's no longer a controlled choice. Um, and the ability to stop is not that simple. And for those of us who've never experienced it, it's really easy to judge. Um, and I myself, yes, have changed my perspectives a great deal on on things such as Narcan and harm reduction. And um, I see that the benefits of having these programs in place far outweigh not having them. Um, because the bottom line is people cannot recover if they are dead. And the goal of harm reduction and preventative measures such as um, you know, Narcan, um, STD, STI testing, HIV testing, um, doctors on staff, clean and safe supplies for individuals um, to utilize is we know that people are going to go out and get those regardless of whether we offer it or not. Um, we are able to support individuals in, in having um, safe, clean supplies so that we can keep them alive for the next day. What about the criticism that, oh, look, it looks as though Berkeley County uh, is a great place to go if you're if you're addicted to anything that requires, you know, um, a needle because they've got supplies for you. So then does it become a magnet for for folks who are in the throes of addiction or who are homeless to say, well, look, there, there, there's some infrastructure there? Um, certainly not. That has not been my experience. Um, you know, the, the individuals that we serve are, are primarily local. That's actually a requirement. Uh, you do have to show proof that you are a Berkeley County resident in order to seek services with us. So um, they are all local individuals and, um, you know, typically individuals who are struggling and, and may be unhoused uh, not necessarily have the means to travel far lengths to, to seek that service. Well, we have just a few minutes before we have to get to our final break of the hour. 
But can you let people know where to go to get in touch with you to find out more information, especially about all the different uh, meetings and groups and classes that you have going on? Sure. So uh, we have a Facebook page. It is just the Berkeley County Recovery Resource Center, uh, where we post all of our updates regarding meetings, programs, um, everything that's going on locally. And then we also um, have our office, which is open to the public um, over on 800 Emmett Rouse Drive, right across from Martinsburg High School. So I wanted, before I let you go, and I know we're running short on time, but um, <clears throat> when I talked to Tim Saya, uh, we talked about, you know, some some drugs that are coming through the community, uh, and there are ways that you guys can notify folks whose family members are struggling. What are your bad batch notification processes? Yes, so um, we are using um, data locally and then data from um, some of our principal areas in Maryland where we know the drug supply is coming across here to the panhandle. Um, And Stephanie Stout with um, Potomac Island Guild has done an incredible job of um, these predictive measures. So we know that um, we've got about 36 hours if we see a spike in these other um, localities before it hits us. So what we do is a lot of pushing on social media. We also reach out to um, our individuals that we know are at risk, their family members, their loved ones. So we have even get out and do outreach. We put backpacks on and go out with Narcan and hand out Narcan and um, just inform everybody that we feel would be beneficial um, for knowing these things to um you know, get out in the community and push that Narcan and push supportive services for them. Absolutely. Well, I think it's very important information to be getting out, especially nowadays with it being more and more and more prevalent everywhere, not just here uh, in the Panhandle. But thank you for coming in and chat with us this morning. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. No problem. And stick around. We'll come back to wrap things up here on Panhandle Live on WPM and WCST, the Panhandle News Network. Welcome back to Panhandle Live. Here are your hosts, Jordan Warner and Marsha Kavalik. Welcome back to Panhandle Live, driven by Country Roads Tire and Auto, with two locations to give you a higher level of care in Martinsburg and Hedgesville. Online at CountryRoadsTireOnline.com. Jordan Nice Warner, alongside me is Marsh Kavalik. If you missed any of our conversation uh, there before the break, you can listen back to it a little bit later on. Very important stuff, especially in our area. Uh, we all know how you know crazy opioid pandemic i mean all this stuff that uh, is happening drug related in our country not just our area is that's uh, a very important stuff there so if you missed it you can listen back to it a little bit later on we're going to continue this conversation as well uh pastor tim greeno from the um rescue mission has some some thoughts about how this is all being approached and i know he's someone who's a consensus builder tries to get the community involved so we're going to talk to him continue this conversation Probably tomorrow. I don't think you're going to be here, though. No, I will not be here. But uh, you will not be alone. No, Mikey Withrow from 4-H um, valiantly stepped in. I said, hey, you want to be a co-host for a day? He's like, every day. We can do every day if you Look want. Look at that. Like, the whole time you're gone. So, Man. yeah, you feeling a little threatened? No. Mikey's going to do a great job. If there's <laughs> anybody yeah, to, take, if, to fill the role, Mikey is the great is He's a awesome. great pick to do that. So mm-hmm. that'll be uh, pretty interesting for you. But, yeah, I'll be down in Florida tomorrow till Monday. Looking forward to it. You know, Hopefully, get a nice big sunburn. No, no, I Where, am. Uh, I'm not the person hat. to add, to talk to about skin health. That's you need, for sure. You need a big hat. Well, I wear the hats. I got I, the hat. That's not uh, the issue. But I don't know. I like. To, I like. To, I'll get one good burn in, mm-hmm. and then I'm good for. The, I won't burn the rest of the summer. You're I red need to from get, Charlotte. Good. I want it to be. Okay. I, I was actively trying to get sunburn, which is uh, a doctor will not recommend that one for you, but. Yeah, I, I get that one good burn and then I'm done. Mm-hmm. But that's the other thing, too. We were talking about with Rona yesterday. 
Um, I'm not much of a beach sitter. Right. I don't, like, don't like sit the on sand. the beach for too long. I'll be I'll be out and about. Don't get me wrong. I'll be out there, uh, but not necessarily sitting in the sand for too long. I'll walk through it. I guess. Yeah, but you're going to be at, you know, the dust, the dugout, right? The, the yeah, baseball that's dirt. That's right. Checking out yeah. some spring training for the first time. I've never been down there for that. So I've been cool. down there at the same time, um, but I was also playing, so I didn't have uh, time to enjoy Very it. cool. I know. My parents always say they love that me and my sister played sports because they were able to go on all these vacations. Sure. And, and like the best, the funny part, too, is they would always somehow get their way in to fly with the team when we would go places. So they didn't have to worry about flights. <laughs> They, they would all have to worry about is where they're going and where nice. they're staying, and that's it, which I always thought was funny. Well, very cool. I hope you guys have good weather and a, and a great trip, and you don't have to worry about anything up here. Oh, well, good, because like the real deal Bob Steele says on 95.9 The Big Dog, I'm not going to have service wherever I'm going, So even though I'll be in like, the classic, second biggest city classic in the state. Classic Bob Steele. <laughs> Absolutely. I know, but it'll be a good time. And you and Mikey will have plenty of fun here on mm-hmm. the radio for a Absolutely. couple of days. But if you missed any of our show today, you can listen back to it a little bit later on on our Panhandle News Network Facebook and Spotify page. It was certainly a jam-packed one. We got things started with Metro News statewide correspondent Brad McElhenney talking about the state police and all the you know talk and conversation around the superintendent. Jan Cahill retire, or, uh, res- resigning, not retiring, resigning. He'll be uh, on Hoppy, uh, with, on with Hoppy, my goodness. On talk line, I do. Maybe I need to break sooner rather than later, Marsha. But we also it's heard coming. excerpts from uh, the Berkeley County Development Authorities podcast, and then, of course, was just talking with Berkeley County Recovery Resources. But that does it for us for today on Panhandle Live. If you missed any of it, listen back a little bit later on. For Marsha, I'm Jordan. Have a good one. We will talk to you tomorrow. WEPM Martinsburg and WCST Berkeley Springs, a WVRC media station. We're proud to live here, too.